Welcome back to One Winning Pod. Uh, we got a good show for you today. We're here to talk about ESPN special, the 30 for 30, Bullies of Baltimore. Uh, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about our Super Bowl picks. We got a number of topics here today, guys. So I, I guess the first thing to open up with, what'd you guys think of the show? Oh, I had so much fun watching it. And I just looked it up in case anyone else is wondering. 30 for 30 comes from 30 films in celebration of ESPN's 30th anniversary in 2009. Because I was like, there's nothing 30 minutes about this. You know? <laughs> and I was like, are there 30, 30 minute installments? No. It's, uh, yeah. And this one was two hours long. It wasn't even one hour. So uh, very cool. Super enjoyable. I said, Rachel, I think it'd be a lot of fun if we watched this together. And she watched it, which I thought was fun. It was like a, a whole family affair. And uh, it was cool, I think having her there because you know obviously i know the lore but this is like this is this is like almost a target audience right someone who doesn't know about this team getting to learn about them for the first time so i thought that was like kind of cool to have her watch it with me yeah that's awesome and you know it, it, it's funny i think even for us and we've kind of touched on this before because i mean this is uh the third off season in a row we're talking about the the 2000 <laughs> ravens <laughs> uh super bowl just from a different different angle each time but um it's interesting watching it with more of knowledge of football and everything. Um, you know, we've talked about how all of us were in varying stages of our of our infancy of watching football when this season happened. Uh, for myself, it was the first time that I sat down and watched a season from opening kickoff to to final seconds on the clock. And and what a great season to to start being that type of diehard fan for because obviously the Super Bowl. And that huge win streak and, uh, you know, the next couple of years would be a, a grim reality check of what actually being a football fan is that you don't get that that fairy tale season every year. But, um, yeah, it was it was interesting seeing some of it that, uh, you know, as a as an eight year old kid, and I didn't understand the national conversation around the Ravens. I didn't understand uh, the inner workings that were going on with, you know the roster construction and and then the quarterback drama. Uh, I I knew that Dilfer replaced Banks because the Ravens weren't getting touchdowns, but (laughs) you know, but you know, a lot of it we've put together as we've gone, but still there was some of it that was new, which we'll talk about certainly, but yeah, definitely very nostalgic, uh, which was cool to see um, because we've, especially considering the past two seasons have ended so dis- in such a disappointing fashion with the injuries to Lamar Jackson, it was really great to get uh, a, a new jolt to remember why it is that, that we get so hyped up about this sport, about this team, um, these great highs that we've had with this franchise. Yeah, for sure. I, I really, I think from, from my perspective, I know I, one thing I really appreciated, I think, was the, uh, just like kind of the, the like, historical perspective of it not just like covering the team but kind of just um you know kind of around the situation of you know who the ravens were what their identity was and just you know they mentioned a little bit about the franchise um before leaving town and kind of why this is so significant uh for the people there and um you know getting you know kind of what you said alec of just having people who haven't really have any of that background um kind of putting it in there i thought it was just well done um Obviously, for uh, if especially <laughs> especially if you're sympathetic, I think to Baltimore. If you're a Baltimore fan, like yes, it was well done. If I'm sure, if you know, I'm sure if you're a Cleveland fan. Maybe things are a little bit different, but I certainly appreciated it. 
In fact, I, I have to say, I, di- I didn't have as much luck as you getting my wife to watch it. Um, I even said, I was like, hey, you know, you might learn something, something historical about Baltimore. You're going to learn a little bit more about <laughs> the history. And she's like, nah, <laughs> not for me. Um, but I admittedly, was stunned I got away with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, admittedly, we just came back from like a seven hour drive. So yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't blame Bit her. Bit of a tough sell there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, one thing one thing I certainly do appreciate. Uh, I mean, it's been, gosh, yeah, like twenty three years since it happened. The footage that they were able to uncover like looks incredible. I think that was the first thing that I kind of realized of like it's so hard uh, as a fan right now if you don't have sort of these you know well crafted documentaries where you have people going in and actually you know remastering the footage and putting it in there with quality. Like it's really hard to find game footage like that at that quality anywhere else. And uh, you know, I thought, I thought some of the plays look fantastic. Like, looks just as good as some of the film that we have today on you know, our 4K, you know, HD <laughs> screens and stuff like that. It, it was really that good. So, kudos to those guys. I think for everybody working on that, I think it came out really, really good, nice. That's a really great point because you know I have the DVD box set, so if I ever want to watch the games, I can. But it looks like crap. And the reason why is like a, it's DVDs. So like the maximum I think is like 720p on a DVD. And it's also just I don't think it ever got remastered from the films. But you're right, Chris. Like to get to get real nerdy about a couple of videography things around the NFL and also for 30 for 30. So like the NFL has always spent money on film. So they always shot film, not tape, um, even back in the day. So if you go back to the old film, you can re- render it in 4K, no problem, because it has that kind of fidelity on the film. So that's kind of cool. Like the, the, they wouldn't put the effort in, I guess, for everybody. But like, it'd be kind of cool if they actually remastered all these Super Bowl runs that they actually do have film in. Uh, yeah, it'd be a great way to make me spend money on the box set yet again, right? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the 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 film uh, they can do that. And also, the other thing I thought was really cool about the thirty for thirty is like the second they walked up, you know, and they had that like uh, purple arch and like the uh, the gates that kind of opened up, and they were like sitting in the interview chair. I was like, that is the most ultra wide angle lens. Like it must have been like a 20 millimeter like the way that they look so dynamic it's like it's an ultra wide and i was just like oh that's kind of cool <laughs> like uh, like i just immediately kind of noticed what they were what they were doing there to make them like kind of look larger than life and a little distorted but um but yeah that, that it was really fun watching that and i agree with you like it's so cool when you get to see this footage like freshened up because like what you did also notice probably too is like what didn't look good is the uh the news when they were showing the the goof on the roof because yeah. that was shot on tape that was shot yeah. on tape because that's like that's just the way that tv broadcasts were done um for you know like lower budget stuff and, and for the news right. like why wouldn't it be you know it's it's very ephemeral it's gone the next day kind of thing so anyways like i i, I thought that was really cool too and i'm, I'm glad like other people noticed it because like now that's like my new thing is like i'm always looking at, like how did they make this their thing <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it wasn't just the game, like the you know actual like you know on the field, the sort of like play by play stuff. It was a lot of like the sideline footage, like yep. some of the, um, you know, thing that kind of stood out to me. I think was some of the, um, some of the clips from Shannon Sharp on the sideline, like at at, at Adelphi Stadium. Like it looks fantastic. <laughs> Everything they said, I, we said, we said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the cinematography and the effort that. ESPN puts into these things. I'll admit that I'm not someone I've watched terribly many 30 for 30s. I've watched, they did one over a decade ago on um, the Baltimore Colts marching band. That was a really good one. It chronicled how the marching band stayed afloat and helped bring 
football back to Baltimore during that dead space between uh, 83 and 96. Um, that's a really good one if, if anyone listening hasn't seen that one. And um, watch the, all of the, uh, the Last Dance, Michael Jordan one, back when that came out. Uh, and same thing that Chris is saying, they had all that, <laughs> all that footage from, from Michael's run in, uh, in 4k. It was incredible to see. They do a great job with that. It's definitely a series. that's on my list of things that I would delve into if I had infinite time, but it's just, you know, there's only so much time <laughs> to yeah. watch. I don't know. Maybe I'll, yeah. I'll go into some of the other things that aren't, uh, Baltimore sports centric or uh, favorite basketball player of all time centric, but you know, not just the cinematography for that. We could we could talk about that more too, and I'm I'm sure we will. But um, a story, I think they did a good job with weaving a story in there too, which is something ESPN does. Obviously, they're sports entertainment um, in addition to to sports news. So, what I did find interesting, what jumped out to me immediately, and I'm sure to practically everyone watching, was that the documentary started right away with uh, the, the funeral service um, for, for Tony Saragusa, who we know passed away untimely this past summer. The, the whole thing uh, even had for Goose at the end kind of felt like a, a, a tribute to him um, almost as much as it felt like it was a chronicle of that season, which w- was both, I think it was done well uh, and respectfully, but also at the same time, it, it was interesting because it was like, you know, I wonder what the original plan was for how they were gonna gonna frame this story. Because really, they bookended it with that that memorial. It was just the start of it out there, and then at the end of it, they had um, the players, you know, exchanging some words about life while celebrating Goose's life. So that was interesting about it, and and, and made it uh, gave it a degree of poignancy that it wouldn't have had if not for that. I don't know what else more to say that I just found that a little interesting to think what the framing device would have been had he not unfortunately passed. Yeah, I don't know. Um, certainly, I know when we uh, when Alec and I went to the live event. Um, I think I talked about this on uh, Ken show. Um, you know, after that night was um, basically, I guess that live show reminded me that the 2000 Ravens wasn't all it like it wasn't Ray Lewis like you know, going into like the 2012 Super Bowl and kind of looking back, it was like, okay, Ray was the only one there. And, you know, he was always kind of working to get back. And, you know, in my head, at least 2000, Ray was the Super Bowl MVP. Ray was like the guy, the leader on this defense, historical defense. And therefore it was like just him. But it, at least live, it was like very clear. Like it was not just Ray. Ray, if actually of anything, was one of the guys who probably spoke the least. I think Jamal Lewis might have been next. But uh, you had Billick, you had Saragusa, Sharp, and then Rod Woodson. I think all of them talked more than Ray. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think I think they probably would have shown that anyway. I think it probably would have been a lot of, of, of Saragusa. I do think there was, um, I guess it was Sable interviewing uh, Syracuse in like a training room kind of asking something about life I think you might have mentioned that Peter of, mm-hmm. I think that definitely like that sort of thing would not have been there if if you know for his if not for his passing because um, that you know I think he ended up talk- he ended up talking about what he would have happen at his funeral <laughs> so yeah you know it's a little bit out of place if they wouldn't have put that in there but I thought it was good man it's just I, I don't you know I don't want to say this in a bad way but you know because obviously you don't <laughs> you don't want to wish for anything here but I mean if from ESPN's, you know, perspective, I think, you know, 
Syracuse is entertaining, no matter what. Always entertaining. And, you know, it did make for a good show, I think, having a lot of footage from him. You know, and, and I, I do think it, you know, it ended up making it a little bit more special, too. It was kind of nice to weave that into a tribute about him. And I think there were even a few things as well that they probably uncovered that weren't mentioned in the live show about Syracuse. I think the, the one that kind of stood out to me was that story about uh, Al Davis offering him the contract in 96. Oh, yeah. Didn't realize that one. Um he came back the next day and lowered the cost by 50k and then he said shit to him after we won in oakland i mean that's just incredible that's it's so goose too (laughs) yeah you know a couple things to unpack there i i felt similar to you chris where i never really thought of the ravens as like a like the 2000 ravens be such a saragusa and sharp let, I mean, I, maybe more so sharp, but Syracuse, like, I, maybe because of, like, what he did with the media afterwards or what, like, for whatever reason, like, I just never really thought of him, I hate to say it, like, the guy who's passed and now, like, I never thought of him, like, that highly, you know, like, not in a bad way, like, I didn't think negative of him. I, but feel, just, like, I feel like I thought of him kind of like a Jared Johnson of, like, fan favorite, for sure, like, yeah. a guy who's, like, a good, like, personality, like, on local stuff, but I, I didn't think of him as kind of, like, the... But it's just let's just say like almost like the face <laughs> like this documentary almost kind of made him like a like one of the faces of this like main faces of this team yeah and and the way like it was portrayed right it was it was goose and it was sharp those two were the ones that are the loudest and biggest talkers during this event and in the footage and you saw it in the hard knocks which i do remember the hard knocks part like them being goons i don't know but for every reason like i guess over time like Syracuse like became more and more in my head, I guess, like the sideline reporter goose and less the 2000s personality. So like when I went to the thing, I, I got reminded of it. And then his passing a month later was wild. And particularly because like he was so full of life at that thing. You could tell it was a very sudden event um, for everyone involved. And yeah, I just like, I definitely think this documentary, like they said, the producers said um, in a couple of like, interviews that they've done recently that when they look back at the footage, they just like liked it more and they didn't really change much about it um, because of the death. But I do think like those bookends, obviously like those don't exist. Otherwise the, um, the little like trainer interview part that doesn't exist. Otherwise probably like him having a kid, you know, like seeing the kid that doesn't exist otherwise, but like everything else just, it was just uh, amplified almost um, by that extra storyline. And I do think it's special and I'm just like glad it happened at this point. Right. Like imagine if they wanted to do 30 for 30 past a month before it'd be a completely different documentary. I don't, I, you know, like <laughs> you can't replace goose, particularly like after seeing all the things that he did. Um, it's great that he was able to be a part of that. Definitely. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, so, you know, Alex talking about his, uh, his box set DVD he had, I remember that, um, because my dad had gotten season tickets after the uh, the Super Bowl, he he got signed up for those. If, um, maybe like right after, because I remember that we went to media day and I got to run around on the field and fail at catching punts from the jugs machine. That was an experience. Um, but uh, yeah, so with the season tickets, you got the the free uh, VHS tape of 
the chronic, which basically chronicled the the season. Um, and and Saragusa was was again one of the main characters uh, in that one. He was one of the ones outside of Ray Lewis and Shannon Sharp who was interviewed the most. Um, Cadre Ishmael was inter- interviewed a lot in that too, which um, is something we can talk about later. Some guys who maybe uh, should have also gotten uh, some more talk in this documentary who didn't. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think even back then, Goose was he, he was one of the stars of of this defense. Was it because of his play? or was it because of his personality? I think it was probably a little bit of both. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but for um, the week before of the Super Bowl, the Sports Illustrated cover for the preview of that game, you have uh, Michael Strahan and Tony Saragusa on that cover uh, arm wrestling. <laughs> so like that's, that's Sports Illustrated. That's national right there. And they've got uh, Tony Saragusa up there arm wrestling uh, Michael Strahan, not Ray Lewis there. So... Um, yeah, I think I think he was always a guy who was in the spotlight. But you know, another thing though, going back to this 2000 team and and you know talking about how, of course, Ray Lewis is the big name. But and again, we're talking about getting our wives to watch it. Um, I was kind of in the <laughs> middle of both you guys. I got Alice to watch the the first half, but then you know, of course, with the infinite, once it hit 10 o'clock, she was just like, all right, I'm enjoying this, but I I have to go to bed. I don't care enough to stay up for the last hour. <laughs> so. Um, we were talking about and she was like asking like you know what was it that made the Ravens defense so good back then uh and compared to you know what defenses are today like why are, why are they considered one of the greatest of all time and the, the first thought that came to my head I was just like you know there was no weakness on that defense every single player was at worst above average compared to the the league you know, the average player on defense on that league, you look at that starting defensive line, the linebackers, the cornerback. Gosh, I, I I even thought about it while driving home today. I was like, the one weakness on that team, maybe it was Kim Herring. Right. And then... <laughs> maybe. But then, you know, what's funny is is I saw today a, a video on on YouTube. Um, so Sports Blog Nation uh, has a, a YouTube channel called Secret Base, if you guys have heard of that. And they'll go through oddball... Um, sports history stories on there and they did a video where they were trying to find the absolute worst performance in uh in super bowl history and they landed on carrie collins performance against the ravens in super bowl 35 and leading off you know i i've never watched the the I've watched the highlights of that game forever but i've never wa- like actually delved into the, to the game tape Apparently on that first drive that the that the Giants did, the Giants thought the same thing that I did. They were just like, where's the weak link in this defense? Oh, it's Kim Herring. So Kerry Collins starts attacking Kim Herring, and, and on the first two plays of the game, Kim Herring basically should have had two picks. Like, he was right there, and just the ball goes off of his fingertips. And, of course, he would have an interception later in the game. The Giants did this. They were just like, that's the spot we want to attack. And Kim Herring was like, nah-uh. And then they were just like, well, sh- guess we're not scoring tonight <laughs> so it's like there was no weakness on this defense and even when you go into the backups you know uh, uh washington uh bailey trap it, the, the defense was just stacked and it's it's just it, it's incredible to think about it especially with how teams are constructed today that you have that much defensive talent on one roster yeah i remember when they pulled up the graphic and they showed the starting lineup i said the same thing to rachel i'm like this is ridiculous like the only guy there that you wouldn't say is like 
I think even a pro bowler at one point or another was Kim Herring. Like everyone else there, yeah. pro bowler, hall of fame, uh, but ring of honor. He even had a good year that year. If you look up his stats, he had three picks. He had like 60 plus tackles. He was. Oh, yeah. No, he, he was good. And, and I, yeah. No. He, and like you said, he's above average. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> he, all these all these players have had story histories and they weren't like washed up by the time that they were uh, playing on this defense. So just re- remarkably good. And I thought it was funny when Billick was like, yeah, we have this great core with with uh, Adams and Saragusa. And I'm like, you're just completely leaving out. <laughs> Yeah, McCrary, right? And he's like, then we have the middle with with Ray, and I'm like, what about Boulware? You know, (laughs) like there's so many. You could have talked about everybody that way, you know. And uh, that's that's like the the really powerful part about the defense. Yeah, it was just pretty incredible. I think you know the the kind of one thing I guess we can talk about a little bit is you know much like the you know the live performance. Obviously, there were only a couple of guys on stage that talked right i mean you had goose ray woodson jamal lewis um dilfer and uh brian billick right obviously a lot more players that we're talking about here and that we haven't talked about that were on that roster you know i think i maybe would have liked to see a few more interviews from maybe some other people if they could have gotten them at least for the 30 for 30 would have been kind of nice to see um, you know, I was I was joking with you guys at some point. I was like, you know, where's where's Jonathan Hogden? Because you know, another Hall of Famer on this roster who you know, for most of you know, obviously they're talking about the bullies of Baltimore. That implies the defense, but you know, you have a lot of offensive footage, and I I, I swear I couldn't see Jonathan Hogden anywhere. <laughs> and it wasn't until like at least halfway through the documentary that you see like something from him from the locker room. He, he was making some joke or something. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit surprising just to not have anything from him. He's obviously, you know, still with the organization, like still very much an, you know, an active part and kind of around. But yeah, it was a little surprising that they, I guess, didn't kind of uh, interview him a little bit. You know, maybe it has been done before. I know there wasn't, was it the America's game? I guess it's not 30 for 30, but um, there was an America's game on the 2000 Ravens. Maybe he was in that. Um, But yeah, there were a couple other names as well. Just kind of would have been nice to... um, you know, have a little bit more to kind of add on to it. Yeah. I thought it could have benefited from, uh, Quadra Ismail because he's also, you know, been a part of the media since forth, well-spoken. Um, and also like he was a dynamic player on the offense, not named Jamal or sharp. And yeah, I, I mean, they had Jamal there, they had Dilfer there, but they didn't talk that much. All things considered. I mean, Dilfer a little bit more so, but Jamal didn't talk too much on stage, kind of similar to Jack Del Rio. And yeah, it just felt like they could have went maybe a little bit different direction, but it was, you had, you kind of had to have Jamal because of the storyline. And I think that's one of the things that you have to pay attention to too, is I think they had a lot of the footage and what they want, the story they wanted to tell done. And then they did the 30 for 30 live event to create like segues almost like they already knew. That's why they had some of those talking points. I don't think they did that and then built it around that. I think it was the other way around. I think they already knew what they wanted to do to some extent. And uh and I guess I guess they were like, well, we're going to talk about this run game and how Billy had to, you know, sell his soul uh and lean into the running game. And all those all those clips of uh Steve Young, yo, like <laughs> being like, I can't believe a Trent Dilfer's gonna win the Super Bowl. Like the NFL will have to close shop. And I was just like, shut up, dude. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you guys. It would have been nice to have, to have seen a couple more uh, guys in there. That being said, I mean, going back to America's game, their format, they just you just have three guys uh, there talking to the camera uh, for the 35. I'm pretty sure it was Billick, Trent, and Ray. And then, um, uh, yeah, when they did 2012 Super Bowl, it was Harbaugh, Ray again, and Flacco. So yeah, generally just the head coach and two key players. So in that sense, it was kind of, you know, we were getting more because obviously America's game, we didn't get Saragusa's take. We didn't get Sharp's take. Um, it's just so tough. With, you get a football is obviously a team sport. And like we're saying, Kadri Ishmael is a huge part of that team. Ogden, Jermaine Lewis, Peter Bulware, um, you know, Matt Stover. I mean, who's the guy who yeah. carried the offense through those five weeks with no touchdowns? Matt Stover, come on. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I don't even think they mentioned Stover's name at all during the documentary. <laughs> um uh, then again, we know we're the only we're the only sports city in the world anymore who cares about kickers at all. So, yeah, I mean that's I, I think it's just a limitation of that format. You know, if if you had expanded it any more, you would have lost the narrative. So, you know, it's just an unfortunate reality of of that type of storytelling. But yeah, uh, I going back though, you know, I guess we can talk a little bit about the offense, uh, the defense. We could talk about all day, but. Um, it, it was good to see Trent Dilfer on there. I uh, was really happy for him that he was on the same stage with, with Billick. And uh, as Chris mentioned in our notes, he did say at the end that in the past couple of years, he has finally been able to let that go and kind of bury the hatchet with the Ravens. Um, you know, there's no way around it. Uh, I think time has shown that the Ravens probably should have signed him at least as as a backup to compete uh, for that Um job in 01 in case the free agent Brad Johnson or Gerback, whoever it was, didn't pan out as did happen. But it, it is funny though. You, like you look at the Ravens team and of course, Dilfer by his own admittance was not uh, a great quarterback that year, far from it. But his, his style and, and his approach, his understanding of, of what the team needed was, was critical. And, you know, do the Ravens win the Super Bowl without Dilfer? or at least a quarterback who could do that, probably not. They probably would have flat. He, he did enough uh, to, to get the, the team where it needed to be when, when they needed him to, I think, which was shown in that regular season game against Tennessee when he had to lead the team back and score that game-winning touchdown after, after throwing that pick. Um, and then, you know, the quick strike uh, to, to Sharp uh, against the Raiders, you know, beating the Blitz there. But... It really just struck with how humble and, and aware of a guy Dilfer really has been uh, throughout the years, which is, isn't something we didn't already know. Um, you know, he he certainly has not been missing from from cameras uh, over the past decade. He's been in a lot of different sports-related media, uh, ESPN, and I think he had a show where he was coaching high school quarterbacks or something like that. But yeah, it, it was good to see him get... Um, I think a, a, his a fair analysis um, of of what his role was on this team that that really shed him in a good light. For sure, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, I, I forgot that he mentioned it. You know, we saw it live, but the whole like, you know, everything that they're doing these days like doesn't impress me because defenses don't play the same way or they're too protected. I was like, that's such a hot take, you know. And he's got a lot of like, I think uh, RG three like reposted it, being like, you can't make this up. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean. I will say, like, 
I think that gets to a larger point that I thought was kind of interesting when Rachel was watching it. So if you take someone who like doesn't really watch football and like doesn't have too much context, she was like, why do they keep saying like defense can't be played this way? Why can't like what what's so different about it? And I was like, well, all these highlight plays are showing or these big hits are showing. Like if you do that now, you're probably getting knocked out of the game. Like you're not you're not going to be able to play anymore. And that they did that like down for down you know at least every possession whereas now it's like that that that's like a fireable offense almost you know what i mean like it's just a completely different game um and i think if you talk about um dylan who was like i'm done i'm out of this i can't i don't want to play you know he was like the most extreme example i guess of like walking off the field and being like no nah, i'm not playing like this is too physical but there are other players that they said you know just you could tell we're like giving up on the field and like just didn't want to be there. And I, I mean, without that level of physicality, like you can't do that. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's just different. Like it's one thing to be always stopping them short and like, you know, being a stifling defense. Another like to actually be kicking some ass <laughs> and like just beating people up. <laughs> oh man, I feel like I have to bring this up, but uh, I don't know if you guys have seen, but, but Caleb from our, uh, from our dynasty league literally just posted <laughs> A clip with that quote from Dilfer. Oh, really? In our uh, in our Wait, meme channel now? right now, literally just now. So I just told him, I was like, "Hey, we're we're talking about this in the pod right now, <laughs> literally right now." <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah, I, I remember that from the live show. But yeah, yeah, it's just that's one. I mean, one of the crazy things about Dilfer, man, of just like it. It's got like on one hand, like it, you know, it's it's got to suck. It's just like have so many like you know better players and I'm sure you know Dilfer would say like a lot of these other QBs are better players than he was and you know he's you know was honest about like you know hey I'm not the best but I'm gonna give you everything and I know my role and everything but <laughs> the, the nuts that this man has though and the confidence it's just <laughs> it, it's 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 crazy like I mean you have to admire it Regardless of like the player, man, of just like you know, <laughs> you're talking about Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers, and Tom Brady like this. Oh, I mean, Tom's got seven Super Bowls. Come on, like. But Dilfer's got one. He's got Dilfer's one. Got, but he's got one. <laughs> he's got a ring. He's got more rings than us combined, man. <laughs> but I mean, I think I, I think going back to it though, like that's why Dilfer worked with this team. I mean, you know, he had that mentality, which is what this team had the arrogance that the rest of the, the league saw it really what it was, was just a team, at least from how it comes off to me was, it was a team of guys who just really like they knew what they were and they were incredibly confident about that. And they just let that spill over. And so you, you needed that type of quarterback. That was the only type of quarterback that was going to complement this defense. You know, it's just in some ways it was kind of like, you know, compare him to the 85 bears Jim Jim McMahon worked perfectly with that defense. He fit in right with with what their mojo was. And Dilfer was Dilfer was that hard nose was a hard nosed quarterback. They showed that clip where he he went after uh, John Randall, which I had read about on his Wikipedia page, but I had never seen uh, the footage of that. Um, what a madman! Yeah, <laughs> the the guy just had ice in his veins. Uh, you know, it, it's it's no surprise that the Ravens would go with with Flacco as, as their long term after seeing what what they had with Dilfer and quite honestly McNair too. I mean, that's just the type of quarterback that's that's um, really thrived during the that era from like 2000 to, to 2010. That's extended to 2012 with the Super Bowl run when this type of defense w- was still rampant in the NFL. 
that type of quarterback complemented the Ravens defense uh, perfectly in that era. And team chemistry is a thing. And, and, and Dilfer knew the mission statement and, and he was on board and it, it, it paired perfectly. It was the missing piece. Might not have been pretty, but it was the missing piece. I did find the ending kind of interesting, like the non-Saragusa part of the ending, where they started talking about the next year and how they, they try to like re-sign everybody. And then they show that footage of uh, Jamal going down. And I was like, dang, they had cameras. Like, <laughs> like I saw that, but I, I didn't, I never got to see it again. Like it was kind of weird to see it again. You know what I mean? And that was such a, a big blow to that season before it even started. Kind of similar to when uh, we lost Gus and Peters in the same practice. It was just like equally as like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. this is a big problem. Well, is it that same practice where they lost uh, the free agent signing Searcy? Or is that a different? I um, don't remember if they lost yeah. him to that practice. But yeah, I mean, that all happening, Garback not having the performance they expected, him retiring, you know, just completely changed the trajectory of the team. Um, and they kind of talk about how like the defense got dismantled and, you know, they never got a chance to run it back. I guess it kind of makes sense to kind of talk about like why it never happened again or like what happened next. But it, it was like a little bit weird because, you know, it kind of felt like a little disjointed from the rest of the documentary. Yeah, I, I get what they were trying to do. And I do think it was an interesting angle to to, to go. You got the Super Bowl season and then, you know, obviously there's talk about how this defense is one of the greatest of all time. Biasly, we think it was the greatest of all time. Um, obviously, the, the 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 culture of defensive greatness still exists. Ex- it still exists in Baltimore to this day. And you had some defenses down the line, um, you know, notably like 2006, 2008, 2011, that it could rival that unit as far as it, uh, dominance. But there's the argument whenever you talk about a great team and they only won one championship, you, you there's the question of like, well, well, why wasn't it more? I think that's what they were trying to go for there, and it, it kind of was a way to wrap things up. But yeah, I agree. The, the, they they seemed to take a hard left into it to start with, and then the content that they did show seemed half-baked. As Ravens fans, I'm sure we could brainstorm pretty easily a, a, a great way to have segued into that and, and told that. But yeah, the way they did do it kind of... It, to me, it was the one dud part of the documentary. It, it was like trying to wrap things up in a way that kind of discussed the continuation of the Ravens franchise after that year. What was the fallout? Um, what's the the final legacy of it? And just kind of, it, it was clunky in my opinion. I feel like it kind of is, it kind of had to be, you know, um, again, like, you know, by Dilfer's own, own admission, right? And just from the some of the footage that you saw, like, yeah, he'd make boneheaded plays sometimes, and sometimes he'd be able to bring the team back, but other times you can't. Right. So, like, even if basically, like, even if you brought him back, it's a it's a coin flip <laughs> as to whether like the defense might be the same and they might still continue to be fantastic, but if you have a stretch of games where you can't score touchdowns, you're not going to win games. You're not you know you're not going to win the playoffs. So, it's, you know there's like there was like that element of like you know even though this team was so dominant there were definitely some elements of luck or of you know and and as much as you want to try and spin the narrative that like oh yeah they were like destined for this and everything it's just like 
the the reality is like they're really good, <laughs> but they had some luck, and that it's a great story after. But that doesn't mean that you know they were good enough to basically just run it back completely based on the defense, no matter what the offense did. So you know, and even with Jamal going down, like yes, it was a it was a big deal, but you know, was it the whole season? I I, I don't know. You know, it, it's kind of hard to kind of put that all in one player, but. Yeah, I don't know. The, the the sad truth is, you know, and I think a lot of us kind of understand this a little bit more now, is that Super Bowls are really hard to win. Even if you have a really, really good squad or a really, really good offense or defense, it, it's really not enough. Like, other teams are, are truly, like, you know, they, they could be competitive. They call it every given Sunday for a reason. I feel like it's just hard. You like you you, you want to make it so that it's like this pretty story and like, you know, it makes sense that, de- you know, destiny was not to be had the next year. But, like, the reality is, like, it just doesn't happen. So there's not really yeah. like a great way to kind of <laughs> say it other than just to say it that way. Yeah, definitely. And I definitely agree with that angle. Um, I personally would have liked them to have like tailed it off with a little bit of, you know, discussion on how that season really came to define for lack of a better term, the Raven way, because I mean, let's be honest, so much of what happened that year, um, even to this day, there's elements of it that really defined how the Ravens ran the franchise going forward. Um, I thought they could have touched on that a little bit, but then again, you know, was it necessary? No, I just, you know, I, th- I think it would have been an interesting thing, especially when, you know, when we talk about the beginning and they were talk had Billick talking about uh, the legacy of Baltimore sports and what the team meant to the city. Um, it would have been cool to see how that team really cemented the Ravens as, as Baltimore's football team, because, you know, we were too young to remember. I, I don't honestly can't tell you from talking with my dad and a couple others, you know, from my understanding, the Ravens were not terribly popular until that year. And like, you know, now, you know, there's there's plenty of people in the city that just, you know, they care about the Ravens. They're not sports fans, but like they care that they win, you know, and they know the star players any year, you know, Lamar Jackson, Justin Tucker, et cetera. But yeah, I thought that would have been a, a nice thing to to put in there a little bit of discussion on the legacy of that team to the Ravens today. But they, I think they outside of that very good uh, job by a, a national uh, production team to capture what this team meant uh, in that year and, and that story. It's kind of crazy how perfect Billick was to be a part of this team. He was like the perfect coach for it. The way that he talked to the team um, the way that he let that defense be them. And, uh, you know, some of the clips of he was going to go over to pep talk the defense after a big drive and Ray would be like, not right now. <laughs> like, I got this. <laughs> and stuff like that. He's like, all right. And it, it's, it's almost ultimately what came to his demise in some ways. Like, several years later, people were like, oh, like, he he didn't have his his hands on the team anymore. Like, the, the team, like, had got to run, run away from him, maybe. I don't know. Like, I, I almost like, I can't remember. Maybe, maybe Peter, like, as the story here, can remember better. But like, having watched the the documentary and how like good of a coach he was for that moment, for him to like fall off. I guess it was like the offensive struggles with the quarterbacks and and the wide receivers that maybe did him in. I don't know. But like, the fact that he ever got fired is like it's kind of surprising. Or like, he didn't like continue to be a, a coach. He seemed like a good coach. Yeah, I, you know, Billick, 
I can think of several reasons why he never got another job. I, th- <laughs> I mean, I think you, you look at the fact that he was brought into Baltimore to be a pass game specialist, and he never was able to get that there. I, I'm sure some teams looked at that and said, like, well, that's kind of a big failing, <laughs> because honestly, it was. And, you know, I, I, I like Billick. I like Billick more than, than uh, some Ravens fans. I've certainly met some Ravens fans who uh, don't care for the guy at all and think that, that he was uh, simply along for the ride for the Super Bowl. Um, I don't think that's true at all. And I think something like this documentary shows that um, while certainly I think there, that there is something to the point that there was a veteran group of players there, Shannon Sharp, Rod Woodson, uh, mentoring Ray Lewis to be that next generation leader, that certainly made his coaching job easier. Um, I think he was a big part of the team. Uh, and also, again, some other things that worked well in that sp- specific situation uh you know his his brashness and his his uh perceived arrogance to those outside the room um i could certainly see a front office being like ah we don't really want to want to deal with that um but i mean you know every head coach is going to have detractions uh when you're looking at their resume but i i will agree that is interesting he said no problem getting um and getting jobs in front of a camera explaining uh, football. And, and personally, I think he's a he's always a very uh, interesting listen uh, when he's ever he's talking X's and O's and anything. But uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I, I can I can see what the red flags were that would have scared some teams off from him after he was time with the Ravens. But yeah, at the same time, it is a little curious. You would think maybe there weren't quite enough to get him completely out of the game. I think it's amazing he's gotten a job in the media, especially after, you know, that interview. In the- <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he joined the dark side. <laughs> yeah. The reporters ask you, like, who are you to, like, tell us what we can and can't do? Like, I'm up here and you're here to listen to me. <laughs> I'm the one on the podium. That's like- an amazing answer, too, by the way. Hey, I don't know if anyone else has ever had... I don't know if anyone else has ever had that quip before. You know, in like a similar situation, but it was like, man, so quick witted. That was amazing. It's it, yeah, it's like it's one of those things, man. It just like makes us like if if you're a Baltimore fan or if you're a fan of just like just a, a, a like a, a a brash like hard nosed like team underdog winning it all, you're gonna love it. If you don't, <laughs> you're not. You're gonna hate it. But yeah, it's just incredible. Just like, was that real? And it, what? It was real. Like this actually happened. It's just one of those incredible. Just like, oh my god, I cannot believe you said that. Especially having Harbaugh now would never do that. <laughs> oh yeah, totally different. <laughs> and, and I'm like, you know, I'm not saying one's better than the other. Like they're good for the, you know, each of them. I think were good for the times that were needed. But <laughs> but. It's just, man, one of those just like absolutely incredible stories of like, oh my God, like, yeah. And that, and that honestly was one of those of like, for for those any detractors you kind of mentioned, Peter, of like people thinking that Billick was along for the ride, that to me is one of the like reasons of like, he was not along there for the ride. Like he was there, he was facilitating something. He was there for his guys, defending his guys and like leading his team. And, you know, you could say he was brash, definitely brash, but like, there was an element of like, you know, it was controlled and like shielding the guys and like letting them do what they needed to do. And, you know, sometimes letting them go off leash a little bit. But like at the end of the day, like, you know, he still had control of that team. 
going again to timely conversations, um, if you currently go to to Brian Billick's uh, Twitter, uh, he current his most recent tweet is a retweet of of someone asking why Brian Billick never had a uh, got a head coaching job <laughs> post post Ravens. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I mean, definitely pretty weird. You go from yep. you know one of the best offenses of all time in the '98 Vikings and to the 2000 Ravens. You know, that's pretty different. <laughs> those offenses are really different. <laughs> I think it is one of those subtle things, though, of like, you know, if you, you kind of have to... It, it wasn't like the, the, the face, obviously, of like the, the defense and the, the dominance that they were was definitely front and center. But it's definitely one of those, you kind of got that from some of the clips of like, you know, Steve Young and, and some of the ones like the picks at the end, where some are like, oh yeah, I think Billick's just going to go back to his old ways of like wanting to pass the ball all the time. Of, uh, you know, like, you know, that was one of the narratives of him coming in is that he would bring the 98 Vikings offense to the Ravens. And it, it, it never happened. But even, even when it didn't, like, they were thinking, like, oh, yeah, he'll want to bring it back. He's going to get it at some point. And yeah, it was one of those, like, you know, he really had to, like, you know, turn that part off of his brain and be like, okay, no, I can't do that. I've got Jamal Lewis. I've got, you know, Dilfer. I like, I it just, you gotta shut that part of the playbook out. Close that vault. And we'll only, only call around plays. Let the defense <laughs> do what they want to do. Oh man. Taking a, uh, a hard, hard left from that, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do have to say as, as someone who is, you know, somewhat of a movie buff, I, I always loved, um, Ray uh, talking about it 2000 and they had it in there too where he's just like for every night I'd go to the movie store I'd go to Blockbuster and I'd rent Gladiator watch it before every night every game it would get me in the, in the mood I mean ah, I don't know if he actually ever did that if he really watched Gladiator every night before a game but made for a good story and uh, Ravens used that um, one of the themes from that uh, film uh, Hans Zimmer legendary film composer uh, as the Ravens that, that soundtrack would play before the Ravens would get announced for, for a few seasons I, would, I think at least through 2008 I want to say yeah I, I, I do wonder though did, Ray did you actually ever watch Gladiator every night before the game I don't know I don't know about that but <laughs> it's a fun story <laughs> You and Rod Woodson both have your uh, doubts about every game. <laughs> and I do, yeah, I, I think you saw that in the notes. And I, I, I would have I loved to have had a little more Rod Woodson. He didn't say much in the documentary, but it was quite clear that he was, he was there every now and again to kind of, you know, poke some holes and bring, bring some reality back to when, you know, the hyperbole of Billick, Lewis, Ray uh, and Shannon and Goose got a little too too far. I did enjoy that, um, even though it was it was brief. <laughs> it was that was entertaining in there. I guess to wrap up this segment of the show, it might be fun to uh, say like your favorite quote or your favorite like short story from the uh, from the the documentary. Oh, man, well, there's so many. You gotta make me pick one. You know what? I, I will say one. I will say one. Um, it was subtle. It was a subtle one, and. I really, what was really struck me about this whole thing was like, you know, these are a bunch of guys. They're all, they all got a ton of money and they, they did this over 20 years ago. A bunch of guys just put together on a team because their football skills, um, 
mesh together to form a winning unit. And you could definitely tell with those group that was there, and I'm, I'm sure that extends to a lot of players and coaches who weren't a part of that event, the, the camaraderie and, and the lifelong bonds that, that they're, you know, they, they formed from that. Um, and there was a subtle moment at the end that, that kind of showed how deep that ran. I think you had, uh, they were, sh- they had everyone turned around at the end. They were watching the screen, the Super Bowl highlights, and they were showing, um, the play where Jamal Lewis had his, uh, rushing touchdown. And during that moment, you could, they showed Trent Dilfer just give, who was standing next to Jamal, just give him, you know, a, a pat on the back of, of recognition watching that play. Um, I don't know. That to me just kind of showed the depth of, of the bonds this team had for each other. There's the, the quarterback, you know, who was, I'm, I'm sure Dilfer, while he wasn't a star, was in some ways a mentor to Lewis, you know, who was a, a rookie that year, you know, and that was a, a huge deal for Lewis, man. That was his rookie year. He scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. I don't know, just that, that small little acknowledgement, you know, it's, the more we go through life, uh, we realize that the most important things are the bonds we have with family and friends and those who have gone through the battles with us, um, which is bigger than any game, any project or anything. So that was my biggest takeaway of from it, the camaraderie these guys have, had, have for each other even two over two decades later. I know what mine is. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, the one thing we didn't talk about was the, the Dilfer um, – playbook getting stolen which is such a wild story and um i don't know if it came to light until this documentary or like you know until that that uh like you know initial event but um it makes me wonder like you know obviously he went to the sideline saying like he thought that they stole it and uh you know then they start playing him again and and they're they're knowing all the plays and all that. It makes me wonder if that quintessential line that wasn't supposed to be recorded and the cameras were supposed to be off would have ever happened if it wasn't for that. Maybe it would have because that's just Billick's line. <laughs> and I won't say it here because it's a family-friendly show, but you know the one. And I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> like I just loved, I love the whole like respect a good opponent, <laughs> turn off the cameras, <laughs> cuss them out. And like I said, always respect a good opponent when they came back on, you know, like that, that I thought was Billy in a nutshell. So I, I kind of uh, really like that line. I feel like I said this when we saw the show live, but that was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was so great. Um, <laughs> it's just, again, one of those like, oh my goodness, can you, can you believe like this is, this is real. Um yeah, I know, you know, I know, um, you know, we've, we've, we've talked occasionally about this. I think we talked about this a little bit, um, with, with the Bengals kind of having a lot of their success last year of them be kind of being the trash talkers. And I know, you know, you and I, Alec, I think have kind of been on the, like, you know, I, I, I think the Bengals are, are talking a little bit too much for what they've kind of brought on the field, but I, you know, I got to bring it out, you know, Peter's, Peter's, you know, brought it up like, look, man, 2000 Ravens, that was their thing. That, you know they were they were the trash talkers um you know they weren't just the bullies they were the trash talkers they're going to tell you about you know how they're going to beat you and and they're going to go ahead and do it and uh you know there is a fine line of you know being able to trash talk and being able to back it up and i think the guys you know they mentioned it on there a lot of times i think i always said marvin lewis was like if you're going to talk trash you better back it up yeah. so um you know it's it, it it's definitely hard to hate 
it's it's hard to hate that when you know that that is such a part of our identity as like a as a franchise you know what i mean you know and that was actually i think probably one of my favorite moments i think was was not that one but i think the uh the the shannon sharp like whatever they said we said whatever they said we said we said we said it um (laughs) of uh you know just him not giving a crap like yeah we said that we were gonna win like yeah we said that you guys weren't good enough and look at the scoreboard like we won the game (laughs) Yeah, there were uh, you know a couple things I think of him talking to the crowd a little bit, kind of getting under their skin. Um, you know, rightfully so. You know, I think at the at the time, you know, they didn't show as much of it. I think uh, maybe a little bit here or there um, because they did show the um, in the Titans playoff game. They showed that clip of Billick from the regular season game, the second one. Um, where he had said, like, you know, the Titans, Sports Illustrated said the Titans are the best team in the NFL, but not today. And they, they played that up there. So, like, those fans, like, they knew. Like, you know, <laughs> those guys knew. They, you know, they thought that they were the best team in the NFL. They had, you know, great record that time. They had a great quarterback. They had McNair, Mason, who were going to be Ravens many years later. Um, they had a really good team and a really good defense as well. And, uh, you know, they they were they were talking shit too and you know Ravens were like no we're gonna come into your house and we're gonna show you that we're the best team and they did it twice that season so you know it's um you know although, although the Ravens I think were trash talking I think you know it, the the reality was that there was there was a lot of talking going on I think on both <laughs> sides and you know the Ravens uh were fortunate to end up on top there yeah I think that last comment on that the documentary uh certainly provided the Bengals with a master class on how to properly uh trash talk and back it up with it hopefully they uh they don't take that <laughs> that's right well we're gonna do our super bowl picks for sure so the line is eagles by a point and a half and the over under is 50.5 as of right now monday february 6th so, guys, where you stand at this, I hear Peter has some thoughts about the line. <laughs> you want me to go first? Okay. Well, this will be interesting because you guys can tell me. You'll either jump on with what I'm saying or you'll say I'm completely off base. But, um, yeah, I, I was shocked that the line was as close as it was. And I, I understand that people have, have questions about the quality of, of um, offenses one of these teams has played throughout the year. But again, going back to the 2000 Ravens, that's the same thing that everyone was, was saying about this Ravens defense going into the Super Bowl. And, uh, as we saw pundits like Steve Young thought that Kerry Collins of all people, which is hilarious to think about, you know, decades later was going to tear apart this defense. Um, there's no way Mahomes is going to be 100%. I think that the Eagles pass rush is going to, um, overwhelm him and he's going to have to think too much of how to react with, where his body is right now. I don't see the Eagles uh, losing this game, and I think they win it by double digits. So I'm I'm taking the Eagles to win this one big. I think for me, I, I also like the Eagles as well, for what it's worth. Um, and I think for me, the two things, actually, I say three things that I look at. Um, Chiefs are definitely dealing with a lot of injuries. I think um, Mahomes, he might get there. I think... The second biggest injury, I think, is Legereus Sneed in the uh, secondary. I think um, I think the other players in the Kansas City secondary right now just not playing good enough to be able to cover some of the Eagles receivers. Um, 
we were talking about this during the uh, game against the Bengals, but um, McDuffie, holy crap, uh, <laughs> does not look good right now. Um, I'm glad the Ravens did not pick him. Um, he's just like running behind on every single play, and like he made a few tackles, but like just looked like he did not know where to go pretty much any play. So I, I really like if if Snead is healthy, I think that might do something. But um, I think if he's not. I, I think the Eagles are going to have a good time on offense. The other thing, too, um, you know, they're also a little thin of receiver. I think three, uh, Smith-Schuster, Hardman, Tony, all left the game. Uh, some of them might come back. Yeah. Hardman's um, on IR. Hardman's definitely Hard- out, yeah, as of today. Yeah. Har- Hardman's definitely out. But CEH out. is back. Yeah, adjust your ranks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Chiefs win. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that does much, but um, yeah. But I mean, you know, with the Mahomes injury, like, you know, Mahomes, I think, can make it work. But, you know, I think you saw the offense was just struggling a little bit with his injury and all the receivers out. But I I do think the Snead injury, I I feel like that is probably the the biggest uh, question mark for me if he's back. I think it makes it a little bit closer. But I do think think the Eagles are just playing – so much better right now like I don't think the Chiefs defense right now is is that great um you know to be able to handle the Eagles have got a rushing game uh they've got a really good passing game Hurts is playing at a high level and the Eagles defense like their their defensive line incredible uh their secondary is also playing really well yeah I just I I just think they're the better team I think they're gonna come out with this victory I don't know if it's gonna be double digits but uh what's the line one and a half yeah definitely Eagles they'll cover it yeah so I'm also Team Eagles here. Uh, fly, Eagles, fly. But uh, the thing that's funny to me, and to kind of tie it back to our 30 for 30 discussion, is the other part that had me geeking, maybe my other favorite quote, was like, I don't know if it was it was Rod Woods, and they were all kind of saying it, but they were like watching the film, and they're looking at each other, and like, oh, we got to win this game. Like They're already like picking out their ring sizes and stuff. Like They were so confident they, they were going to be able to beat them. And uh, I don't think any of the teams are doing that right now. But if anyone's doing it, it's the Eagles because they are a complete team that has answers for any challenge that they'll face. I don't want to bet against Mahomes and say they're going to win by double digits. I, I think Mahomes is just that special. But I will say, like, I I honestly don't really see how they lose this game. I mean, sure, there's pass. Like, the Chiefs are phenomenal. Don't get me wrong. But, like, I... I they should win. Like they're just that good. They deserve to win. I think that they should be the Super Bowl champions. So I'm, I'm picking them. I'm picking the under. That's the only other hot take I'll say is I I like the under in this game. So yeah, it's uh, I'm super excited for it. I'm I, I'm thrilled. I won't be upset if anybody wins. You know, <laughs> the Bengals didn't make it, so life's good. And uh, now I can just uh, just sit back and watch it. But I, I do think. It's the Eagles Super Bowl to lose at this point. Yeah, the only the only two things I guess I'd add is um, you know, the the only thing that gives me a little bit of uneasiness is that I, I feel like the Eagles have kind of had a pretty easy ride. Like I, I was actually I was really surprised the uh, NFC championship game went the way it did. I think if Purdy was healthy, I think the game turns out way differently. In fact, I kind of like San Francisco. I, I, you know, before that happened, I kind of like them to be the upset. Because I think that they truly had a, a good roster as well, but with the Purdy injury, yeah, it just derailed everything. Um, 
So like a little bit worried about that, that they've kind of coasted to this point. So there could be a little bit of overconfidence. So I will say that. But I, but I will say if Mahomes somehow wins this game, block that man's Hall of Fame ticket. Because, I mean, he got two Super Bowls, how many AFC Championship games? Like, I mean, that would be incredible, I think. Yeah, definitely. Well, especially because he would be doing it at, uh, you know, not 100%. Um, I will say to the point of, you know, we don't think it, if you're worried about them not being able to, you know, win by double digits. Uh, that was the la- most recent time we saw the Chiefs in the in the Super Bowl. Granted, healthy Mahomes, but not healthy tackles. Uh, Tampa won that one pretty big. But that's true. Yeah, I I I, I do hear what you're saying with um, maybe a little bit of an easy schedule. But you know, that is one thing though that the Eagles. I thought the 49ers defense was going to give them a, a bigger test than they did. And, you know, the, the Eagles, you're supposed to be able to beat them through the air, and the Eagles were able to, to have a lot of success rushing the ball. Um, that is a thing. If the Chiefs are able to stop the Eagles' rushing attack, how healthy is Jalen Hurts' shoulder? That is something that that could work in the Chiefs' favor because, you know, we're talking about Mahomes' injury, Hurts' We're not 100% sure how healthy he is either. But, yeah, agree with you guys. It's it's a good matchup. Uh, should be a good game. I, I hope that the Eagles don't win by double digits because I want to see an exciting game. I don't want to see a blowout. But <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is where I was leaning initially when this matchup was announced. Then I saw the spread, and it made me think, oh, wait a second, am I off base? And then I got to thinking, oh, maybe the Chiefs will keep it close. But now I'm like, nah, nah I think the Eagles are going to win big. It's just that both sides of the ball for the Eagles is like – very solid where I know the defense for the chiefs has stood up in opportunistic times and they do make big plays, but they're not that good. Like, yeah, that's the, that's the difference to me. Yeah. And and you look at the wide receiver core and how broken down it is now. And it's like Mahomes, you can make, you know, some pretty decent wine out of water, but not, not, not full on, you know, (laughs) like I I don't think you can turn this one around. (laughs) So that wraps up this episode. Next episode, we're not sure what it'll be. Maybe it'll be our offensive coordinator. Maybe it'll be Lamar News. Maybe it'll be that it's been two weeks. We think we should do an episode. Uh, we won't rush it, though. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll be waiting for the news to happen. I think I think we will have offensive coordinator news, though, in the next two weeks. I think that's pretty safe to say. Um, after the Super Bowl, I think they'll, they'll make their decision relatively fast. So that'll likely be our next episode. You can find us on Twitter for now, at OneWinningPod. You can find us anytime, OneWinningPod.com. Or on YouTube at OneWinningPod. And you can email us OneWinningPod at gmail.com. We'll talk to you soon. Enjoy the Super Bowl. <laughs>